Episode 2 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. Let's go through the books. Yeah. Uh, first book, you talked about writing about your hometown, but what was the first commercial book? Yeah, the first was a book called Thomas E. Dewey and His Times. What year? 82? It was published in 82, and I uh, did it with Alice, the legendary Alice Mayhew. I mean, I was very lucky. I mean, I remember... <laughs> I walked in, you know, I had a friend who had a friend who was becoming a literary agent, uh, sort of a legendary figure himself, Rafe Segallon, here in Washington. And, and it just so happens that we went into the business together, he as an agent and me as a would-be author. And um, he went, I wrote, I didn't know you weren't supposed to, I wrote a hundred, a hundred page book proposal. Um, you know, which I suspect is about 90 longer than it should have been. But at least it gave evidence that from the very beginning, I thought, look, this man has got to be more interesting than the little man on the wedding cake. Explain that. Alice, Alice, well, (laughs) there's a story about that. Alice Roosevelt Longworth was always credited with this marvelous, because it was so spot on, bon mot about Governor Dewey, who was a short man, about about five eight, very sensitive about his height. His critics said he always stood on an encyclopedia uh, when he when he gave a speech. But um, but more than that, he he looked. He was very prim in appearance and very precise. He was a perfectionist, perfectly dressed, and um, and he had a mustache, which in those days was. Um, suspect. Either it recalled either Charlie Chaplin or Adolf Hitler. Only if you were lucky did it uh, remind you of Clark Gable. And 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 Dewey's whole manner, his public manner, important to distinguish, was somewhat supercilious. So it all just came together. Alice Roosevelt Longworth is credited with having described him as looking like the little man on the wedding cake, and and it was it was just it was perfect. And devastating. Why, why was she doing that? Um, she was not a Dewey fan. Remember, uh, I, ironically, because uh, Theodore Roosevelt's daughter was a great admirer of William Howard Taft's son, Robert. Robert Taft, Mr. Conservative, Mr. Republican, was Dewey's nemesis. Senator from Ohio. Uh, Senator from Ohio. Yeah. And represented, in, in those days, the, the kind of Midwestern conservative core, anti-New Deal at war with the East. And Tom Dewey was governor when? And Tom Dewey was governor for 12 years, three terms, from 1943 to 1955. New York. But before that, he had been um, a, a national celebrity. Um, he was the gangbuster. He was the racket buster. Uh, he was uh, gone to New York from Michigan, so he had Midwestern roots. Um, and... Uh, um, much against his will, was sort of sucked into the legal slash political world, um, and be- became the the special prosecutor, in effect, who smashed the rackets, put Lucky Luciano uh, behind bars, uh, was then elected as a, a district attorney. This is in a city that was five to one Democratic, and and and, and Dewey's popularity was such that in neighboring counties, in Brooklyn, for example. On election day, they had to post signs saying Dewey isn't running in this county. Um, he became synonymous with New York. 
for better or worse, because then as now, there was a great divide in the Republican Party. It went back, ironically, to the TR and Taft fight back in 1912. It was geographical, the East against the Midwest. In those days, the South didn't factor in in Republican politics. Uh, it was really almost as old as the Hamilton-Jefferson uh, divide, which it in some ways mimicked. Um, but, but anyway, the one of them, Mrs. Longworth, I talked to her for the book. She was quite elderly, but she, I wrote to her, and she was very kind. She sent me her phone number, and I called her at the that sort of Adams family-like residence uh, up off of DuPont Circle. And uh, we had a very nice chat, and she was very, very frank. She said she didn't deserve credit. For the for the line, um, the fact is she overheard it in her dentist's office. Well, you know, there's a very small corrective, and that's that's no small part, it seems to me, of the biographer or historian's function. It is. I've been at this long enough now, um, and I'm sure lots and lots of other folks would would say the same thing. It is. At first, illuminating and then depressing to see how often the same stories, the same anecdotes, the same quotes get picked up lazily and, you know, transferred to the next volume. And it seems to be part of, part of your job is to strip all that away is to well, go back to the beginning. One, one quick question, because yeah. I want to go on to the next book. <clears throat> on Thomas Dewey, he ran for president how many times? Well, it's a good question. He was nominated twice uh, in 44 and 48. He ran in 40 and was the favorite going into the convention, and only to lose to Wendell Wilkie. And, of course, who's standing in the galleries at the convention hall but a, uh, a young Yale law student named Gerald Ford? Shouting, we want Wilkie, we want Wilkie. Um, Dewey, and then, but Dewey's influence lived on after. I mean, imagine being 46 years old, which is what he was in November of 1948. Everyone had assumed he was going to win. Although, again, one of the things that is overlooked is people grossly exaggerate the lead that he had over Truman. And, and in fact, the, the poll showed it. By modern standards, five points, six points, it would not be assumed, as it was universally assumed, that this was over. Okay, let's go on to the other books. I want to go back to some other things in yeah. your own life. What was the next book? Well, then actually I signed a two-book contract uh, based on the Dewey that, you know, he'd done well, been well-reviewed, and I was very lucky. I got to do a book on Herbert Hoover, primary focus being on his post-White House years, which again struck me as being the most revealing um, period of his life. Here's a man, well, in some ways, <laughs> was almost a sequel, uh, taking up with the Dewey left off. <clears throat> Dewey was a, a man who said late in life, everything came too early to me, and who was saddled in middle age with this lifelong reputation as the man who blew the sure thing. And, you know, 
spent the rest of his life, in effect, dealing with that. Well, Hoover, on a much larger scale, Hoover had been the arguably the most admired, perhaps most loved American, certainly uh, on the global scene, because he was a global figure. He was the man who'd fed Belgium during World War I. He was the man who Woodrow Wilson had put in charge of the American Food Administration um, here at home. He fed the Soviet Union, despite the fact that he despised communism uh, after the war. I mean, he was the largest American of his time. And so in 1928, the slogan was Hoover, and it made perfect sense. Well, he had, and this is what contributes to the Greek tragedy of Hoover, he had a foreboding that people had been led, frankly, apparently through his own efforts, but they'd been led to expect miracles. And that if something, he said, if something terrible were to happen, if something profound were to go wrong, uh, I would be blamed. I mean, it would be personal in a way that, you know, other presidents had not. And of course, that's exactly what happened. So he spent the, the bulk of the, of the bulk of what I wrote dealt with, you know, how do you come to terms? Your political life is over, in effect. Certainly running for office is over. Um, you have become anathema to millions of the same countrymen who cheered you uh, into the White House. Um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? And he lived for over 30 years. Um, and how do you constructively put back, in effect, your life without becoming bitter, without simply seeking vindication, whatever that means? Did you ever meet him? I never met him. Did you ever meet Dewey? No, but I was in the same room, <laughs> very large room. In 1968, at the ripe age of 14, I wangled a ticket from Elliot Richardson's secretary as a guest of the Massachusetts delegation to the Republican convention. And then I got, out, uh, I got a job and I earned the money to pay for airfare and hotel. And in August of 68, I was in Miami and on the floor of the convention in the Rockefeller demonstration. But I remember the first day of the convention, Monday, uh, Dewey spoke. It's the only time I was ever, you know, in the same room with him, and I was a long way from the podium. But I, I um, the next best thing, I, I interviewed 175 people for the Dewey book. And lots of these were people who had never talked either because, I mean, they'd refused to talk or because no one had ever approached them. And the best of all, Dewey had the same secretary for 37 years. Lillian Rossi was her name. And she knew where all the bodies were buried. And Dewey, being the old prosecutor, didn't put a lot of things on paper. Single best story, I mean, came out of that relationship. First of all, I was able to reconstruct election night 1948, almost minute by minute, and, and, and in, a, in a way that had never been attempted before. But anyway, in 1952, this goes to the question of Dewey's continued influence. In 1952, he had one last chance to defeat Robert Taft, who, by the way, he didn't just oppose for personal reasons. He thought Taft was an isolationist, and after World War II, especially, America had a had a, uh, a, a mission in the world. Um, he writes 
Eisenhower is a very reluctant candidate. Dewey had already told Eisenhower before anyone else that he wanted to run for president. And Ike was decidedly non-committal. Certainly gave no encouragement. So Dewey was very shrewd student. Dewey, Dewey was a much better campaign manager for other people than he was of himself, which is often the case. But anyway, he knew exactly what button to push. Miss Ross told me no copy of the letter exists for obvious reasons. No copy was made. Dewey sat down and hand wrote a letter to Eisenhower, who was then at NATO headquarters outside Paris. And he told him that if he did not quit NATO and come back and campaign actively for the nomination, then the the party was likely to nominate Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> And uh, needless to say, that was not not a prospect that, that Eisenhower found uh, particularly appealing. All right. The book, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, on Hoover was what year? Uh, it was appeared in 1984. The, the, these books came, again, when you're young, it's amazing what you can do. Um, they, these books came at two-year intervals. So the book uh, called An Uncommon Man, which was actually taken, Hoover, Hoover was um, um, mildly annoyed. Henry Wallace wrote a, f a famous book called The Century of the Common Man. Um, Who was he? Who was Henry Wallace? Wallace was the vice president, uh, FDR's second of three vice presidents from Iowa, uh, like Hoover, a uh, great agricultural scientist who was really not, a, like Hoover, was um, much more of a humanitarian. Uh, he was, and a scientist, uh, and he thought like a scientist. He was rational like a scientist, which in some ways disqualified him from from successfully uh, politicking. But in any event, he was a great liberal. He was, he was synonymous with left-of-center politics. In 1948, he would run a third party, the Progressive Party, which many people believed at the time um, was uh, not only infiltrated by, but largely uh, enthralled to domestic communists. Wallace developed a reputation as as a rather naive man. Um, later, by the way, interestingly enough, for people who, who buy into the stereotype in 48, later he became a supporter of the Korean War, uh, and he actually endorsed Richard Nixon for president in 1960. So, um, but anyway, um, where were we? The next book. Yeah, 1984, An Uncommon Man was Hoover's response to the century of the common man. And basically, he said, you know, when we um, need a doctor, when, when we need surgery, we want an uncommonly good doctor, etc., etc., etc. The next book. The next book was The Harvard Century, which appeared in 1986, the year of the 350th anniversary of Harvard College. And it was, um, uh, in some ways, an updating of Samuel Eliot Morrison's classic history, albeit with a much more national focus. Now, you went there. How, were you supposed to write for Harvard? No. This was entirely... I've never written... It's interesting, because I've had institutions uh, approach me, and indeed, when I did my biography of Colonel McCormick, um, that was made possible by the Tribune and the, and the McCormick Foundation. But um, it was also explicitly explained that um, uh, that was conditioned on their having no financial interest or 
or seeing any part of the manuscript. So the Harvard book was equally independent. Let me come back to Harvard, I mean, to this in a second, but I want to go back to your learning process. Yeah. Um, what year in your life in school did you glom on to history? You know, I can't, it's a good question, it's a fair question, but I, I can't tell you a time when I wasn't. Was there a teacher or a professor that you remember in those early days? No, it was It was not something sort of academically inspired. Was there anybody in your family that had? I mean, that? I had I had teachers who certainly made an impression, but no, there was, and that's that's they were all scratching their heads. First of all, my interest in politics, because my parents, uh, neither of them were particularly interested. What happened, of course, classically, was, and again, I was indulged. I mean, I, I, I was very lucky um, because from a very early age, I had a mother who loved to travel. Um, I, I, we, it was a very modest household. My mother was a registered nurse. My dad worked on an assembly line at GE. Didn't have money, but she would all year, save up money, not for the Christmas club, but for the summer trip. And the summer trip was two to three weeks in the, as I called it, the station wagon from hell uh, with my four siblings. Older or younger siblings? I'm in the middle. I have two older and two younger. Uh, and, uh, And a friend of hers. And basically, we'd carve out a region of the country. So we do the Midwest one year, or the South, or most of the South, and um, but beyond that, I got to set the itinerary. Why? Well, maybe because nobody else <laughs> offered to do it. I was um, uh, perhaps um, unduly assertive. Um, there was a vacuum to fill, or maybe I just wanted to visit all these presidential homes and and battlefields, and I mean that's where. You know, uh, the interest in history, the passion for history, was was something that manifested itself, and that fed on the almost physical experience of going there. You know, I, I would say that there's no there's no um, um, there, there's there's nothing like being there, and. Give us an example of some place you remember going to early. Well, I can remember in 1966, two years after Hoover died, going to West Branch and being, we stayed up on the hill. Iowa. West Branch, Iowa. Stayed at the Presidential Motor Lodge, um, uh, which was a characteristically modest hostelry. But it was um, a 15-minute walk down the hill to the Hoover Park the birthplace, the library, the gravesite, and a prairie preserved by the Park Service. And I remember just, you know, being blown away by the experience. It was so evocative. And I suppose it, it, it calls for a quality of imagination. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine writing history or biography without the capacity to summon um, in one's imagination, hopefully as vivid and credible 
as possible um, a reproduction of actual events and, and people. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.